Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. As most of you know, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we explore a funny blooper or mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. And since a lot of bloopers come from China, I thought we'd start a series of bloopers coming from China. And these are signs in Chinese and in English. And the English sign says bulletin. Because the toilet is being fitted up, now it cannot be used. Please to the West, please give us forgiveness. And one has to figure out what that means. But that is what professional translations are all about. Today's guest is Travis Johnson, a retired naval officer, married, married with two children, and on move number 50. His humble beginnings include 36 moves before he graduated high school at age 17, 12 schools, six states, five foster homes, surviving two murder attempts, and a mother with type 1 bipolar disorder. Although, his, although all of this was very rough, there was always an organization willing to keep him sheltered, clothed, and fed. Now he's in a position to give back, and he's made it his mission to help the helpers. Travis is the host of the Nonprofit Architect podcast. He's traveled to 12 countries, and the podcast itself is heard in 86 countries. And as a reminder to many of our guests, nonprofits are a business under a different format, and they operate in the same way as businesses. And Travis's company is a for-profit company that serves nonprofits. Welcome, Travis. Delighted you can join us. Hey, Philip. I'm glad to be on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on today. Thank you. So your background is um, amazingly impressive. And of course, I'd love to spend an hour just exploring that with you. Uh, but perhaps you could tell us a bit more of how you grew up and your background and how you gained some of your global experience. Sure thing, Philip. Uh, most of the turmoil from my childhood is a result from my mother having bipolar disorder. So every time she needed treatment in a full-time facility, my sister and I would have to go move somewhere else, either with a family member or into the foster care system. And then every time that she got out of treatment, she still maintained custody. However, she's not paying rent while she's in the hospital. So every time she got sick involved, another two extra moves at minimum. And uh, that didn't include landlord disputes and not being able to pay and all these other scenarios that happened. So very, very liberal on uh, where we called a home. There was actually actually three different school years, uh, kindergarten, second grade, fourth grade, and seventh grade for me, where I was in three different schools during each of those school years. Oof, wow. And was the father in the picture? Uh, he is in the picture now. He wasn't in the picture during uh, that time. It's very hard to maintain a sane relationship with someone that suffers from bipolar disorder. So with yeah. every relationship that we have out there, uh, there's those friends that you're like, you know what, maybe we give them a little bit of room and uh, just happen to be with my parents. So that has its own special group of challenges. Definitely. And 
I presume after high school or college, perhaps you transitioned to the Navy and that took you abroad. Is that your first travel experience international? Yeah. So I did a lot of road trips across the U.S. And one of the best things about being in the U.S. is it's so large and it's so accessible via the interstate system. So quite a few many road trips before we hit international travel. Uh, I graduated high school at 17, like we mentioned, but then I joined the Navy uh, at 18 and got my first foray into a little bit of travel. But it wasn't until a number of years later when I actually attended college and was able to afford some international travel on my own. And then much later, towards the end of my career, I get stationed in the kingdom of Bahrain for a year. It's a little island in the middle of the Persian Gulf. For those of you that are unfamiliar with Bahrain, it's one of the few countries where you put it in Google Google Maps and you hit search and it actually automatically zooms into the country because it's so small. Sort of like Liechtenstein, except that it's bigger. Yeah, I think Bahrain's essentially uh, 10 miles by 30 miles is as big as the island is. Uh, yes. Well, just FYI, Liechtenstein is 30 minutes by 20 minutes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, so Bahrain launched you in your international career and, uh, and then how did you transition into the nonprofit architect podcast? Well, it was pretty interesting because of my childhood. I had, I had a lot of different touch points with people in the charity world, the nonprofit world, social work counselors. And I got to a point in my adult life, in my career where I really felt more stable. I wanted to know how to give back. And that journey, that discovery led me into volunteering with nonprofits here in the U.S., to then include philanthropy and eventually serving on a, on a few nonprofit boards. And then when I got stationed in the kingdom of Bahrain, I wanted to ensure that I had something productive for myself to do. My family stayed here in Oklahoma city and I traveled abroad by myself for a year, basically had a backpack and two pieces of luggage. And that was it. I left for the year. Uh, when I got over there, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, very interested to find out that only bad news makes it overseas. So although I didn't know what to think getting over there, I learned it was far much more accommodating and a much nicer environment than I had envisioned. But they only get bad news about the U.S. too. Only bad news makes it overseas. So they were very interested to learn things about the U.S. from me directly as opposed to just watching the news. But my, I had a friend in Bahrain who was like, well, you should really start a podcast. He's like, you've got kind of that podcast voice. And I didn't believe him because when we hear ourselves internally, it sounds much different than other people hear us. I was like, I don't have a podcast voice. He ended up tricking me and recording me. And it was a whole, a whole thing eventually convinced me that I should start one. And I knew I wanted to do some nonprofit things, but I wasn't sure what to talk about. So I had some experience, but I did some research and found that there wasn't really a dedicated show teaching people how to do things in the nonprofit world. And we started that in the fall of 2019. And here we are um, just a few months shy of that three-year point. And from starting that thing, I didn't know all the answers. So I interviewed experts in the industry and it took our show from zero followers 
up to be ranked number four in the U.S. within three months of starting. So quite a bit of success or even early on. That's remarkable. It's extraordinary. Um, and your interviewees are all are primarily nonprofit executives or people who work with nonprofits or both? Uh, not quite. I have about a maybe a little bit less than a third that are actually nonprofit professionals. Then I talk to business leaders, people in the industry that really do great things that also apply to the nonprofit space. I'm a big fan and a big believer that you have to run it as a business specifically designed and geared to generate revenue in order to meet your mission. And then the rest of the folks are filled up with uh, consultants and experts in other industries that are very specific. I've had guests on like Ira Bowman, who's got 200,000 followers on LinkedIn. He's a top 10 guy on LinkedIn to talk about how to do things on social media, like build relationships, how to utilize LinkedIn. I had a guy on who does lead a nonprofit called Keep Music Alive. He shared with us how he gets in contact with celebrities in order to leverage their talents and their passion to help grow and sustain his nonprofit. He had Jack Black, Sarah McLaughlin, and Julie Andrews come and do a few things for his nonprofit to help get it on the map, get the attention it needed and really generate some quality revenue. We've had gurus that worked in advertising at Facebook teach you how to use the Google ad grant for those not familiar that gives you a free 10 grand worth of Google advertising every month for mm -hmm. your nonprofit. So we have all these different industries. We have all these different levels of professionals, but everyone is teaching you the thing that helps them make money. What do they do that helps them earn a living that they're willing to share? So you're getting really every interview is a masterclass with an expert that can help you further your cause just with a few minutes of listening. That's remarkable. That's truly outstanding. Um, so on the international side, you've got, you, you've got listeners who said in 86 countries, what kind of issues arise when you're talking to them or, or conversing with them or interacting with them in different ways? Oh, of course. We have all sorts of different issues. We have language barriers. For instance, Nigeria, even though they speak English, I actually spoke at a conference, a WhatsApp conference of all the uh, most interesting things I've done in the last year or so. And there was a little bit of translation error. They didn't understand all of the stories I used. And I had to be very specific and deliberate with the words that I chose so they would understand what I was trying to convey. Uh, oftentimes, those stories that we use aren't 100% translatable. You started off the show with gaffes in translation. And uh, <laughs> I know a lot of Americans that have oriental style tattoos that have some meaning i'm sure when they read it they're like what on earth are you guys putting on your body right. like <laughs> it's some of these things but you know getting into you know the kingdom of bahrain and, and actually being in a few different countries you know i wasn't sure what to think and i was walking around by myself it was very hot i got there during ramadan and i was sitting in a park across a bridge from kind of the main area, the main part of the island. And a family rolled up and they had a mom and a dad and a couple of kids. And the kids got out, went around and, and had a lot of fun. And 
it was at that moment that I really understood that most of the problems we have between different cultures are really, they're at the government level, they're at the international relations level, they're at the religion level or whatever the religious leaders are saying, uh, but it's not really at the people level. People, no matter where you go, are just that they're people. They want to make a decent living, be reasonably safe and secure. If they've got kids, they want their kids to do better than they do and largely be left alone, build whatever kind of community they want to build. And everywhere I've gone, Spain, Italy, Austria, Hungary, Turkey, Dubai, Dubai is not a country, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Honduras, Belize, or Mexico or Canada, like people just want to be people. They want to have good food and they want to share whatever stories and they want to connect. And, and no matter where you go, people are just people. Absolutely. That's, that's what unites all of us. Very, very true. Um, what do you think has made your podcast so successful with such a broad international reach? Is it that you're teaching uh, primarily nonprofit executives worldwide how to make money, how to make their podcast, their their um, nonprofits uh, financially stable, or is it uh, just some other appeal that you've got? Well, that's a great question, Philip. I think it's really a couple of things. One is when you're in your description of a podcast, whether it's the written description or episode zero, where you say what the show is going to be at, be about, I really believe that's your promise to your audience that you're going to deliver the things you say you're going to deliver. And I say in there that we're going to teach people the how to of nonprofits. We say it's going to be a weekly show. And other than when my family came to visit me in, in Bahrain over that first Christmas, uh, I haven't missed a single week. I've been able to pre-record enough episodes that even if something does occur in my life, they're able to be released. I believe that I'm meeting what I say I'm going to do, right? I'm giving people the how-to. I'm mm-hmm. telling them it's going to come out every week and I'm delivering value. All my guests that come on are delivering the value as I set forth to my audience and I'm relaxed and have fun and I am myself. They know they're not going to get some uh, stuffy, like, this is how we do, like, that's not how I interact, right? That's not the kind of person I am. You know, I've got the chance to meet you in person. You were a fantastic tour guide around Philly. Uh, very much appreciated. But I am myself, largely myself, and I do what I say I'm going to do. And the combination of that really grabs a hold of people when you are yourself and you do what it is that you say you're going to do. Yeah, it's very true. It's about honesty and integrity and following through with your commitments. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What other cultural issues have arisen in your interactions with people around the world? So I got invited to a wedding in Alexandria, Egypt. I was out walking in Bahrain and uh, I sat next down to a guy on a bench and he looked like he was uh, sucking some air, huffing a little bit like I was. And I sat down, I was like, Man, this is just way too hot here to exercise. He's like, tell me about it, my friend. It is oh, far too hot. The sun's not even down yet. I don't know how these people are running. He's like, they're insane. I was like, I can see that, you know. Uh, we had a, just a great conversation. And by the end of it, he was like, you know, Travis, he was like, you are hilarious. I would love if you come to my wedding. And I just assumed <laughs> it was local, you know. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I'd love to come. He's like, good. It's in Alexandria. I'll send you an invite. I was like, 
in Egypt? It's in Egypt? He's like, yeah, it's in the Mediterranean. It's beautiful. You'll love it. You'll love my friends. You'll love my family. They'll love you. It'll be fantastic. And there was a couple things that I wish I would have known before going to Egypt. Um, one, I didn't realize uh, the tipping economy. In the U.S., tipping is very specific, a, a few organizations, and it's, it's a couple of bucks. Um, in Egypt, Bakshish, as they call it, Uh, I understood the tipping culture, but at the time I didn't have a lot of cash on me and I was not interested in using an international ATM that, that worried me. I was concerned about it. I don't know why. I don't know if it was well-founded. It just bothered me. And I had, uh, when I was, when I was leaving, I'll jump back in the story here. I, I ended up on a train down to Cairo. Uh, a, a wonderful man took me in his cab to the pyramids. He locked my luggage in his taxi and he let me take the keys with me on the tour. And he sat there and he waited. I got a private tour of the, the pyramids one-on-one on horseback. Phenomenal experience. I, I couldn't have said it. I, I couldn't have had someone plan it for me better right. than it went. Right. This guy took me on horseback. We each had our own horse, showed me all this stuff. He, he, even my tour guide even kind of like told the guards that were around the, the stuff to back off. So I could take some photos that I probably shouldn't have taken, like standing on the pyramids and stuff. I don't know. You know, I'm sure I'm in trouble, but he was like, get out of here. Like he's very important man or something, whatever he said. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it worked. And uh, the the taxi driver especially took me around. I mean, phenomenal, fantastic experience. I didn't have the requisite cash on me to make it worth his his while working over this time. So I definitely did not do well in this scenario, right? I didn't exactly know. I wasn't exactly sure of the exchange rate or what would have been a worthwhile tip for him. I do know that he did not feel he he felt like he got the short end of the stick and I'm sure, I'm sure he did. So I feel really, I felt really bad about that. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal guy, tour guide. I missed, I missed the boat on that. And then during the, uh, you know, the days leading up to the ceremony, I didn't understand how, um, nonchalant everything was. Then they talk about plans and we're going to do this and do that. Um, it's really just kind of, uh, an idea and not so much set in stone plans. Me being in the military and, and needing to get things done, especially leading to a wedding, pretty much anything they say we're going to do. I assume that it's 100% plan. We have to do this, then this, then this. And what I didn't realize it was more of an idea or a suggestion. So I had expected, he's like, oh yeah, we have to go to the mall. We've got to do this. Then we're going to go out to the club, this, then the other. And I just expected it all to happen. So I was kind of um, upset. I don't know. I think upset might be too strong of a word, but kind of confused. Like, I don't understand why we didn't, isn't that what you said? And I didn't realize how like relaxed it was that everyone kind of talks in that manner without intending to really follow through. Not as a, you know, their not as um, they're lying to me. That's just kind of how the culture works. Uh, one of the cool things I really loved about the experience is that 
their culture. And I don't know if it was the time of year or if there was something special, but when I was there, people were staying up all night. Restaurants were open up all night long. Uh, I went to a place. We got there about 1030 PM. And by 3 a.m., I was worn out. I usually get by 5 a.m. I'm completely gassed. And they're like, you want to go home now? It's so early. <laughs> and there was hundreds of people at this place. There was families and there was kids running around. And apparently, I found out much later that they're essentially up all night long. And they they go to bed right around sunrise, at least I don't know if this was a, a specific occasion. Someone from Egypt right now is listening. And they're like, this is not true at all. I don't know if it was like the summer break and all the kids and families were out, but this place was full of families and they were up all night, three in the morning, tons of kids running around. Was it a weekday or a weekend or did it matter? I don't remember. Yeah. I've slept since then, Philip. I don't remember. Um, but then I got back to the hotel and I, I was a little uh, wound up and I went to go walk a little bit and I wasn't sure how safe it would be. There's kids seven, eight years old riding their bicycles with training wheels out in the middle of the night. And I was walking by this uh, guy had a little, looked like an oven on the beach. And I walked by and I said, Hey, what do you, what do you have? He's like, Oh, are you American? And I never say I'm American. I always say I'm Canadian. He's like, Oh, I love Canadians for, for whatever reason, <laughs> everyone around the world does not have a problem with Canadians. I would have said American. I don't know what I have. I said, I was Canadian. He's like, Oh, I love Canadians. He's like, I'm roasting corn. Do you want some? I said, yeah. So I got beach roasted corn on the cob at 4am on the beach in Alexandria. And I'm eating this thing, knowing that I grew up in trailer parks and foster homes and all sorts of craziness. And I'm like, I don't even know what to get, what what's happening right now. I'm just going to enjoy this moment. Enjoy my corn on the beach at apparently 4am. Amazing. And did you have similar experiences in Bahrain? Bahrain, um, I was surprised. So this is my first real interaction with the, the, the Muslim culture. I kind of expected a, a couple of things. I didn't expect that uh, women would talk to me, especially if they were with their husband or their family. Uh, I found that not to be true. I found out they have like a black curtain area of the supermarket. Then behind the black curtain area, the forbidden area is delicious pork products. I didn't know for many months that I could go get bacon at the grocery store that was hidden by the black curtain. Uh, that was pretty interesting, but everyone there that I met Bahrain is a lot like New York city in that people flock from all different cultures mm -hmm. to Bahrain for whatever reasons, multitude of different reasons. So I met a lot of people from South Africa, a lot of people from, uh, what was the other culture? Ireland. I met a whole, like a dozen people from Ireland proper. Huh. And then there was Aussies and Kiwis and Brits and Canadians and people from India, Pakistan, like right. all over the place. And it just reaffirmed that people are just people. One of the big things that they do in Bahrain, it's run on a Muslim work week. So Friday and Saturday are days off. Friday's the holy day. If you weren't in the mosque, all of the hotels had brunch and brunch in Bahrain is absolutely fantastic thing that if you are find yourself listening to this and you're a traveler and you end up in Bahrain or Dubai, they both do it in, in both places. Brunch, you have two options. First off, the spread of food is absolutely amazing. Everything there is top quality. If you're American, 
not like Golden Corral in the slightest. It's like they've prepared a wedding feast each and every week that you pay two options. It's food, unlimited food for like five hours, or the other one is unlimited food and unlimited alcohol. So a lot of the young Americans that were over there, Friday was a sacred day of drinking and debauchery. So (laughs) you would find different places. There's a place called Big Texas Barbecue and Waffles. And their brunch, you have like a fresh smoked brisket that they're slicing up as much as you want. They've got a pool outside. But this is all over the island. So many different places have their idea of brunch. Get a group of friends together and you all go out and have quite the party every week. It can get pretty expensive. It's not uh, it's not cheap, but to do at least once is 100% worth it. Amazing. Well, you know, now we're involved in a global food crisis in a lot of countries because of the Russia-Ukraine war and the uh, shortage of wheat, for example. So I'm not sure what's whether this is continuing at the moment, but that's certainly wonderful. I see pictures from my friends in Bahrain every week having brunch. And they are. I don't know if every hotel is still offering it or what that looks like, but they find a brunch. That's outstanding. Yeah. Great. So with the the countries that you've uh, traveled in or the countries that you've interacted with, are there other specific uh, cultural barriers or issues or difficulties that you've encountered? Uh, I did find something quite interesting. I traveled to the Middle East before I really traveled in Europe. And what I didn't know is I spent, I spent quite a bit of time, obviously, in Bahrain. And then a couple of trips to Dubai in my week-long excursion to Egypt, vast majority of people speak English in those countries. Right. Which was very surprising to me. And then I ended up going to Vienna to meet up with a friend. And I found out that in more Europe proper countries, they do not give a rip about learning to speak English at all. Right. Arabic countries, they need to speak Arabic and they learn English, all just about everyone. Uh, but in Europe, you don't speak their language. They're not particularly caring or uh, forgiving if if you don't speak their language, which I thought was interesting. So I spent a, a, a two days in Austria with a friend of mine uh, who's also in our, our group and a couple of days in just a, a little small village outside of Budapest uh, had a fantastic time. My friend speaks English and German and Hungarian if that's the language or they speak a different language in Hungary, uh, but he speaks all three languages. So it was very easy to get around as long as he was in the room. But without that, that is uh, super tough. You can't just kind of guess your way through the country. So making sure you understand which countries also speak English, unless you know the language of the place you're going to is something to prepare for. Absolutely. Well, 72% of the world does not speak English. So Right. Uh, the countries that you were in, in the Arab world, they were all occupied by the British uh, or had treaties with the British, protection, protectionist treaties with the British, and that's why they speak English. But of course, Tunisia, yeah. Algeria, Morocco, uh, those are all occupied by the French, and French right. is the national, the, the other yeah. business language there. 
Well, there's a couple of industries that, uh, so business for a long time, if you wanted to succeed in business, you had to speak English as your second language. And now it's becoming Mandarin, I believe, but also the language of shipping and the language of flight airplanes is English. You have to speak English to coordinate with people for shipping and and airplanes. Yes. It's very, very true. Uh, And even, do you know the story of Korean airlines? I do not. Um, there was a Korean Airlines plane that was that crashed. Um, I don't remember where it was, but basically, the pilot and the co-pilot. Um, I, I think it was toward nighttime, and they basically they crashed into a mountain or something, or a huge stone wall of some kind. Anyway, um, the the issue was that the co-pilot was speaking Korean to to the pilot and wanted to tell the pilot to wanted to give warnings to the pilot who was very tired um but because he was a basically a subordinate a junior and it did he he didn't have the authority to question the pilot ah, i did hear about this yeah, country i saw the video so I, I used to fly for the navy huh. and i went to aviation safety officer school and this was one of the videos that we used to to teach because when you're in the flight deck culture doesn't matter what culture and you have to be able to speak up right. and there was a few times uh major including the most the biggest disaster in aviation his, history included this where basically the um the cover boy for pan am airlines was a guy making a poor decision and the rookie pilot was trying to speak up basically got told to mind his business and they killed some 500 people mm. on a runway incursion with another airplane in fog because he the wasn't listening to someone telling him to speak up so between that the korean airlines one and there's a couple of other high profile situations where that occurred where the cultural differences really created problems yeah. uh, for safety and a lot of people suffered and, and died because of that absolutely and the issue became in korean as well as in other languages um the word you is hierarchical you know you use one one word for you to like a friend or a family member another word for you for someone polite someone your senior whatever and the junior doesn't necessarily question the senior so the reason that pilots use english universally is that we have one word for you um and therefore there's no hierarchy in that way and it's become a neutral language to make it you know to to avoid those kinds of problems so so, yeah another linguistic issue that's right that's right um are there other um other cultural issues that you encountered either uh, or success issues that you've encountered in your worldwide fame in my my worldwide fame <laughs> uh probably about the only other thing that i, I probably would really want to highlight is that some cultures it is not ever appropriate to talk business in the first meeting right if you speak about business and you want to just get down to it and get it done you've essentially ended that relationship um there's a few people that i've talked to and i can't remember which country they were from but i mentioned business the face turned really angry and they essentially 
ended the call as quickly as wasn't rude um, because I had been rude by not following their culture that I just really wasn't familiar with at all. Yeah, that's very true, especially in actually in most cultures, certainly throughout Asia, throughout the Middle East, throughout Latin America. It's important to establish trust and rapport with your liaison, with your potential partners um, and discuss everything except business, you know, family, sports, um, music, books, whatever the case may be, without discussing business. I think Americans could probably learn a, a thing or two from that ideal. I can't tell you how many networking events I've been to as soon as they don't think that you can help them or not a potential client or your business doesn't apply to their business. Right. They move on in a very abrupt matter. And yeah. uh, you and I know that relationships, real relationships are the focal point and the bedrock for any quality business relationship on any level. Yeah, it's very, very true. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? There is. Uh, this is a, a big part of my platform that I'm currently building. If you're listening to this, I want you to know that you are worth far more than you think you are. Whatever it is that's preventing you from moving forward with your life is within you is essentially a mental block and nothing is stopping you but you. You are the creator of your life. You can do whatever it is that you want to do. I shouldn't have been able to, by society's rules, being in trailer parks and foster homes, been able to become a naval officer and have a global business and be ranked number four in the U.S. in podcasting. Like that shouldn't be possible. I didn't let what people told me hold me back and neither should you, especially if it's you stopping you from moving forward. You are far more than you think you are. That is fantastic advice and very true that people can, especially in the, the United States, not so much the world, but in the United States, people very much can create their reality and can break through barriers easier here than in other cultures. So thank you so much for that. That's wonderful, great advice to end on. So thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today, Travis. Yeah, thank you so much. And please check out wherever you find podcasts. Nonprofit Architect Podcast. And that is Travis's podcast. And ours, of course, is Global Gurus. And this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business. Thank you. Thank you.